You join me in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, this morning we are looking at verses 8 and 9. And the title of our sermon is By Grace Through Faith. Our key words for our worshipers in training are grace, faith, and rest. Now I hope all of us recognize that the things that we believe all have consequences. And it's an important question to ask ourselves and others, what do you have faith in? Many of you can remember a man who became very popular or very well known in the 1970s by the name of Jim Warren Jones. Jim Jones a self-avowed communist and an influential man who was able to gather a large following of people through his teaching on social justice and integration. And in time, after Jones gathered over a thousand people, his teaching began to shift as he emphasized the importance of everyone being loyal to him, submitting to him, and following after him because he had their spiritual best in mind and would take care of them. He convinced the people that intelligence organizations were conspiring against them, that the future of their children was in danger of fascism and ignorance. And Jim Jones taught his followers not to fear death because death was their friend. Eventually, 909 people, including 303 children, died of cyanide poisoning that was put in grape-flavored Kool-Aid by Jim Jones. Hence the phrase, drink the Kool-Aid. During the investigation, the FBI discovered a 45-minute recording of the mass suicide in progress while Jones justifies what he calls a revolutionary suicide. And at the end of the tape, Jones said, we didn't commit suicide. We committed an act of revolutionary suicide, protesting the conditions of an inhumane world. And this remains one of the largest mass suicide massacres in the history of the world. Now, if you're like me, you've wondered how people can get involved in such things. How people can do something like that or how someone could strap a bomb to their chest and blow themselves up in the middle of a crowded room. Or join other cults or follow radical leaders who convince them of radical things. How does that happen? Our beliefs, our faith, has consequences. Our pursuit of rest and peace and joy and meaning in this life, all of those things are what we are all after. Without exception, everyone in this world is seeking rest and peace and joy and meaning in this life. And sometimes that pursuit ends in something like suicide. But all of these are things that everyone pursues, and that pursuit has consequences for all of us. Faith doesn't happen in an isolated part of our lives. What we believe in and how we get to that place influences everything. So what do you have faith in, and where does that faith come from? Where are you seeking true rest? So far in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 2, we've seen two big picture ideas from the Apostle Paul. He showed us in verses 1 through 3 
what life looks like for the non-believer. We defined sin, we considered the effects of sin, and then in verses 4 through 7, we saw the remedy of sin and what life looks like for the believer. So verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, on the whole, make an entire unit that shows us what we were before Christ, what we are after Christ. It explains how God does this and what we are now called to do. There's a lot packed into 10 verses. And we looked at the first two parts, and last week we started in a bit on the third part. How does God do this? But there's a bigger piece to that that we weren't able to consider last week, so I want to spend more time this week in verses 8 and 9. And then next week we'll consider the last part in verse 10, which is what we are now called to do. Now in verses 8 through 10, we have three main concepts. And I'll mention all three, but we're only going to look at two of them this morning. The relationship of these three concepts is absolutely critical if we're going to understand what it means to be a Christian in the way the Bible, and specifically here in the way the Apostle Paul wants us to understand what it means to be united to Christ in faith. So let's read the whole section, verses 1 through 10, and then we will narrow down our focus. Beginning in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what did we see? We see death to life. And life comes by grace that leads to faith, making us able to do what God has prepared us to do. Another way to say that, grace is the cause of faith, which is the cause of good works. And these three things, these three elements of verses 8 through 10, if you get them wrong, everything will come crashing down. Your life will be a complete wreck and you will miss all that God has intended for you to have and to do simply if you get the order of these things wrong here. It's very simple, but people get it wrong all the time. Here it is. Grace, faith, works. Not works, faith, grace. Not grace, works, faith. And however many other combos there are, I don't know. Got me some slack. I was a liberal arts major, okay? We read books and write papers. Ask Alex. He teaches math. 
But here's the point. There is only one combination of these three elements that bring about true union with Christ and communion with God. Grace, faith, works. That's the order. And here's how we're going to look at them. Two points today, one next week. The first is that faith comes by grace. The second is that faith gives rest. And third, faith brings about works. So the first this morning, if you have saving faith in Christ, it is by grace alone. Getting the relationship of grace and faith correct is crucial. Every preposition in this passage is very important. It is by grace that you are saved through faith. So if you're a Christian, I'll say it a few different ways. If you are a Christian, grace is the material cause and faith is the instrumental cause of your Christianity. Or grace brings about faith, which is what makes us a Christian. We believe in justification by faith alone. So, where does that faith come from? It comes by God's grace. Let me help us think about that a little bit more with an illustration. When I was a child, I spent a lot of my summers and winters in Iowa. A lovely, lovely place. I would visit my extended family there. I remember one year in the winter time, the best time to go to Iowa, mind you. My grandfather took one of his tractors and he attached a rope to the back of it. And a few of us grandchildren sat on the hood of an old car that was laid on the ground. And we grabbed a rope and he pulled us around the yard by his tractor. Now, we were sitting on this car hood. What was the cause of our movement? Why did we move forward? You could say, because you were holding on to the rope. But that's not entirely accurate, is it? The rope is just a rope. It doesn't pull. It doesn't create momentum. It doesn't move us forward. The rope is the instrumental cause of our movement. The rope is simply transferring the power of the tractor to us. The actual cause of our movement is the tractor, not the rope. Now think of that in the same way and realize this is very problematic if we put things in the wrong place. When Paul says that we are saved by grace and it is through faith, what is it that makes us a Christian? Is it grace or is it faith? Faith, in and of itself, is like the rope. Faith is the channel through which grace is active in our lives and we gain forward momentum. In other words, faith is simply a way of receiving what is happening in grace. So why does that matter? It is very, very important. And if we mess this up and think otherwise, what's the big deal? Well, I've talked to a lot of people, several of you, after you've become a Christian. By the way, I love saying that. You became a Christian. We get to see that. 
We get to walk through the whole experience of where you are now. We want to keep those waters over there stirred up. Maybe a little warmer next time, but stirred up. So I talk to a lot of people after they become Christians, and you're a Christian for a while. You've been just soaring in your Christian faith for a long time now. You get the gospel. The gospel changes you. You understand the gospel. And you realize, I'm not saved by being a good person. I'm not saved by my good deeds. I'm not saved because I've always obeyed the Ten Commandments. No one does. God saves you. God accepts you. God loves me and welcomes me and embraces me because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done on my behalf. We get that. Not saved by works, saved through faith in him. And to that, all of us say, amen. So, You become a Christian, and in your mind, you hear that, and you say, great. I'm not saved by my good deeds. I'm saved by faith, but be careful. All of a sudden, something starts to creep into our thinking, and a lot of you have struggled with this. All of a sudden, in time, you're reminding yourself, I'm saved by faith, not by works. Faith, not works. My trust in him, my love for him, that's why God loves me, not my works. But what's happening? All of the sudden, faith has become the material cause for your salvation. The rope begins to pull the tractor. And you get discouraged and you say, you know, when I first became a Christian, I was on cloud nine. I was learning. I was growing. I was being changed. I was so excited about everything. But now things have mellowed out a lot. I'm just feeling stagnant. This is not what it was. This is, this is not the faith I used to have. This is not the love and the warmth and the affection I used to have for Christ. Where's my passion? And you'll come to me and you'll say, am I even really a Christian? Well, that depends. Did God save you based upon the quality of your feelings for him and your love for him and your trust in him or your sense of his presence with you? Is that why God saved you? Is that what salvation is based on? The quality of your soul and the quantity of your faith? If so, you're never going to be a Christian. But here's the response to that. It's in a hymn we sing regularly. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. You ever think about those words? I dare not trust the greatest, sweetest, most wonderful, most amazing emotional or spiritual moment in my life. I dare not, but instead, on Christ the solid rock I stand Why? Because all other ground is sinking sand. We spend our whole lives, once we become Christians, fighting against our own legalism. We actually start as Christians as very staunch legalists. And it often begins with the idea that it is the quality and quantity of our feeling faithful toward God which determines God's acceptance of us. And then when something happens that shakes us or those feelings sort of float away, we get very legal. Maybe God didn't accept me. Well, that's because you have your eyes on the rope instead of the thing that's pulling you along. 
Instead of that great, big, huge, massive, enormous tractor that has all the power and all the force and all the energy, you're looking at the rope. And you're trying to pull back. So you know what? The rope may be down to its last thread. It may be ugly. It may be taped together. It may be frayed down to almost nothing at all. But this is the question. Is it still attached to the tractor? That is all that matters. That is what Jesus meant when he said, a mustard seed of faith. That's what matters. And we have to take another step here. You're a Christian by grace, through faith. That is a conduit through which grace comes in our lives. And it means that the cause of our faith is God's grace. Your faith is not the cause of God's grace. I hope you get that. It's very important. Now, what a lot of people believe, maybe you, a lot of people teach that faith comes before grace. They understand the Bible to teach that you believe, you give yourself, you produce faith, and as a result of that faith, God gives you grace. And when someone doesn't believe and asks you, why should I believe, often we're tempted to tell them something like, well, you just got to have faith. You just have to believe, and then God will pour out his favor and his love on you. Then God will come in his power and his gracious energy and save you. But here's the problem. Paul, rather explicitly, says exactly the opposite of that, doesn't he? Listen, if your faith comes before God's grace, what is your faith? You've turned it into something. You've turned it into a work. And as a result, you're going to have anxiety, you're going to have a burden, because you have become the author of your salvation. And you have to live with the burden of always thinking that you have to keep up the quality of your faith, the strength of your faith, through your obedience. So you see, if faith comes before grace, how will you ever know it's enough? I promise you, you're not going to get very far. And you certainly won't get there quickly if you're pulling a tractor with a rope. And if you're the one pulling it along, how will you ever know if you've gone far enough? How will you ever know if your surrender is significant enough? How can you ever know if all of your faith is going to be the right amount? So Paul answers this kind of thinking. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And it's not from yourselves, it's a gift of God. The faith comes from God's grace. So that no one can boast. See, if I believe it's faith and then comes grace, then I can boast. It'd be very hard for me not to boast I would look at someone who doesn't believe, someone whose faith is shallow, someone who's struggling with sins that I don't struggle with, and I would say, you just have to do what I did. Do you know why you're down in the dumps? Do you know why you're having the problems you're having? Because you haven't exercised faith like I have exercised faith. That's boasting. But if you understand it's grace, then faith, what can you say to someone who doesn't believe? 
you can say, you know what? I know exactly how you feel. There's no fundamental difference between me and you. I also didn't want Christ. I also was far from Christ, but he changed my heart and he can change your heart too because the Bible says, he who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. And if you turn and say, I don't have any faith in Christ, you're being honest, you're being humble, you're seeing who you really are for the first time and the Lord by grace can give you faith. Faith is not something you have to pull out of your heart. It is a gift of God. And that means there's no fundamental difference between me and you. Friends, if you do not know Christ, if you are not in relationship with Christ, I'm saying this to you right now. The faith that is required is a gift from God. And it comes, first and foremost, by the grace of God. Just two days ago, while I was in Atlanta, I was at the Perimeter Mall, and a young man came running up to me from downstairs. He ran down the stairs, and he had headphones in his hand, and he wanted me to listen to his hip-hop music. He wanted to sell me his album, and his sales pitch was, do you like good hip-hop music with positive lyrics that encourage you to believe in yourself? So I turned to him, And I said, friend, I don't want to believe in myself. And I hope that you don't either. I believe in Christ. I rest in Christ. I find my hope and my purpose and my meaning and my everything in my life in Christ alone. And I hope that you would do the same. He didn't walk away right away, thankfully. We had a nice chat. I was able to share the gospel with him. I was able to say this very thing to him. Stop believing in yourself and look to Jesus Christ. And he will not turn you away. And all of that purpose and all of that drive that you are looking for in yourself, that's going to fail you every single time. You were created to worship God. So when you worship anyone or anything else, you continue to be disappointed. You continue to have a need for something greater, something that can only be found in Christ alone. Will you admit you have nothing of worth? Will you admit if you have any hope of everlasting life, you need Christ's life and work and death to be applied to you? You see, the Bible presents the gospel to us in a way that completely eliminates boasting, doesn't it? Romans 3 says, no one seeks for God. John 6, Jesus said, no man can come to me except the Father draw him. There's a great case study of this in Acts chapter 16 and verse 14. It says, Lydia was saved and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. That's how she was saved. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Lydia was the first convert in that passage. And you know, our church is full of Lydia's from our families. Many of us, the first in our family to be converted to Christ. Same story. How does that happen? Here's what happened. It says when Paul was preaching... The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Now, here's how we need to understand this. Who responded to Paul's message? Lydia did. 
We're not saying faith is a passive thing. It's an active thing. You don't wait for something to happen. You do that. That's what faith is in action. But after you've done it, you realize something. You realize you were enabled to do that. The Lord opened her heart. That's the important phrase there. The Lord opened Lydia's heart so that she could respond in faith to the message Paul was preaching. Now, here's the reason why grace has to. It must come before faith. Because unbelief in Christ is not simply happening in a vacuum. Unbelief is not merely the absence of faith. It's the presence of another kind of faith. And that's really important for us to understand. It's critical to understanding the Bible's critique of the whole human condition. A lot of times people think unbelief is simply the absence of faith, but that's not true at all. If one does not believe in Christ, they have another kind of faith. In fact, it takes a lot of faith to drink Jim Jones's Kool-Aid or strap on a bomb or believe that humans came from fish and birds and monkeys. That takes a lot of faith. In Matthew chapter 11, there's this interesting story about Jesus uh, that he tells to the people around him. And he says, to what can I compare this generation? And he says, they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Now, what Jesus is doing is he is comparing the people of that generation to uh, these, these irritable children. Now, <coughs> here's why he did that. Let's say you get a bad-tempered kid. I know none of us have those, but let's just pretend. And you go to that child, and you say, let's go to the circus. And then that kid says, I don't want to go to the circus. I don't want to do anything. And you say, all right, we'll just stay home. And then they say, well, I don't want to stay home and do nothing. And no matter what you do, when you get this attitude, even when the kid actually wants very desperately to go to the circus, they're going to say, I don't want to. Why? What are they doing? They are refusing to give you your way. Why? They will give up their heart's desire as long as they are able to keep intact a fundamental faith in their own ability to rule. What's fundamental to the human condition is this idea that I know what's best for me. And if it's not going to happen in the way I want it to happen then I'm going to fight against it. There is a tremendous faith in one's own competence to run our own lives. Just grab a teenager and have a conversation with them and you will realize this. All of us have gone through that. I'm not picking on teenagers. We've all been in that place. We're seeking some independence in our life at that point. And we think we can do a little bit more than we're being allowed to do. We're giving, we're wanting more and more responsibility. And when it comes out of our mouths, it sounds like I know that I know that I know what's best for me. So why don't you just let me do it? 
it's a tremendous faith in our own competence. And then you turn like 22 and you go back to your parents and say, all right, you weren't as bad as I thought you were. I need some money is really what that means. (laughs) But you remember my friend at the mall? Believe in whom? Yourself? That is so thick. That is so deep. Embedded in our hearts. And that's faith. That's the faith taught in schools and on television and on sports teams and in books today. Believe in yourself. When someone says, I really wish I could believe, I just can't. I wish I was a person of faith like you are. Well, everybody is a person of faith. Everybody. This is what's there if you don't believe in Christ, believing in yourself. And and nobody, except by an absolutely miraculous intervention by the grace of God, can you be loosened from that fundamental faith of I know what's best for me always. I know what will make me happy. I must be in charge. I must be in control. That's the reason why faith is impossible unless as God did with Lydia, our hearts are opened by God. Faith in Christ only comes when God works first by grace. Christ will be squeezed out without grace because of our irrational faith in ourselves. Only God has the power to break that. And if you believe today in Christ strictly because of God's grace, and you know it, if you're a Christian, you know your faith came directly from God. And that's what Paul says. It's a gift. And it's a gift so that you can't boast. If you have saving faith, it is by grace alone. Lastly this morning, if you have saving faith, you will find rest in Christ. Look again, our text says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Saving faith, the faith that saves you, that makes you become a Christian, is not just general faith. The faith that saves you is resting in Christ. It means... It knows your salvation is not of works. Saving faith is not just something we conjure up. It's not something we just have naturally. We must be resting in Christ. It's knowing your lack of worthiness and your lack of strength. And it knows your salvation is not of works. It's not by your own efforts. It's not by your own record, but by God's grace alone. So faith is not essentially a psychological condition of certainty. And it's important that we make a distinction between faith and assurance of faith. You can have faith and you can exercise faith without having a whole lot of assurance whatsoever. And a lot of us struggle with that. There are two different things here. Although they go together, people get tripped up here all the time. It's the same thing with love, and maybe that's easier for us to think about for a minute. You can love someone without having feelings of love for them. Why? 
because love is primarily a verb first and foremost. And in my house, we joke about this because my cousin once told us he was dating a girl and she said, I love you. And he didn't know what to say. And he stared at her and he said, well, I've got love for you. But you see the difference, right? I can still love someone without having these feelings of love for them. Because love is an activity whereby we put the needs of another person before our own. Now often, while we are loving in action, the feelings of love will arise in the midst of it, but that's not the main emphasis. That's not the main thing that we identify biblically as love. The action is far and away more important than the feeling. And that's the same thing with faith. It's possible to exercise faith without having assurance or certainty. Just think, if you're, if you're on the edge of a cliff and you're about to fall off and you see a branch sticking out of the side of the cliff, what are you going to do as you begin to fall? My guess is you're not going to stop and do this assessment. Well, that is kind of a thin branch. I have a little bit of weight behind me here. A little bit. Come on. The root, one of the roots is kind of sticking out of the top. It's, it's kind of loose. It looks like it's going to pull. So I don't know. You know, I could reach out and grab that. But if I do, it might come loose and I'll go tumbling down. So I don't know if I want to grab that branch or not. That's foolish. If you're falling off the edge of a cliff, how much faith do you need to reach out and grab that branch to hopefully be saved from falling? The answer is you just need enough to reach out your hand and grab it. You might have no assurance whatsoever that that thing is going to hold you, but I'm still going to try. You might have a lot of doubts. You might have a lot of fears. But in the midst of that, you can still trust that the Lord has saved you. You don't have to have great certainty for Christ to save you. So I hope you're understanding that faith and assurance of faith are not identical. In the same way, what does it mean for us to grab and hold on to Jesus? It means resting in him. It means seeing our salvation not as a work. We explain this to both Christians and people who aren't sure what they believe at all. For Christians, this is the only way to become a Christian. But it's also the way that we grow in Christ. This week, among us, probably someone did some things that we look at and we realize we're not very wise, that we're sinful, and that we wish we didn't do. Something we said, something we did. So what do we have to do about that? Well, there's a couple of ways I can deal with it. One is I can forget my salvation is not of works and I can become defensive. I can avoid people. I can sort of beat myself up over it for days. Or I can preach the gospel to myself and remember that my salvation is not of works and never has been of works. It is not a matter of righteousness of my own doing, but rather it's a righteousness of my reception from God. So if I spend days walking around saying, because I've blown it, because I've done something wrong, I don't really feel like praying. I don't really feel like seeing those people. 
I'm really going to kind of go off and lick my wounds in silence. I'm going to beat myself up. If I spend two days doing that, what have I done? I've forgotten. I'm not holding on to Jesus. I'm not resting in Jesus. I'm not seeing that my salvation and my worthiness is not of works. Your faith will always rest in something. Each and every one of us has faith. And so our problem is never with our faith. Our problem is with our faith in Christ. You exercise faith every day. How are you able to have a spouse or friends or a job? I can have a spouse because I have faith that my spouse is going to uphold covenant vows. I can have friends because I can have faith that they are what I think they are based on the time I've spent with them and the conversations we've had. I have faith in my job because I have faith that when I do the work, I will be compensated the pay that was promised to me. We all have faith in all kinds of things. And a lot of people don't want to admit that because they don't want to admit that you cannot know anything until you have faith. It's not possible. People say they want to know everything before they commit to anything. But that's not possible. You have to have faith to know anything. And brothers and sisters and friends, the faith that saves us is in Christ. The incomparable riches are in Christ. The faith that moves you from verses 1 through 3 to verses 4 through 7 is not a general faith in principles, but a faith that really is in a man who was God, who was born in the human flesh, who lived a perfect life, fulfilling all of God's command without sin or without error, who died a death for sinners, taking upon himself the full weight of the wrath of God, dying, being buried, and raising up from the grave to conquer sin and death. And you know, Paul is smart enough to say, in 1 Corinthians, if Jesus isn't who he says he is, if he is not the Son of God become flesh, if he did not really die on a tree to take upon himself our curse, if he is not really physically raised from the dead, if he has not actually passed through the heavens and been seated at the right hand of God the Father, let's just stop playing church. Let's go home and eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we rot in the ground and we're done for. It doesn't make sense any other way. Faith in general, or faith in truth, or faith in love, or faith in justice, that will never change you. It will never give you new life or freedom. It is only faith in Jesus himself, and he has done all the work. That's the reason why, if you have faith in Christ, and you rest in him, We know that you've turned to God and said, please give me faith. He will give it to you. And when you rest in him, then all that you've looked for and all of the other things and all the other people in your life will finally be found in the one place that it was all along. So it's not faith in general, it's faith in Christ. It's resting in Christ. And when God, by his grace, gives you faith, you will find rest. So, question of the day. What about you? Are you resting in Christ? Look to Christ, and in him you find life. You find purpose. You find meaning. You find joy. 
you find rest. Look to Christ and live. There you find rest in him alone. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word that instructs us on such vital matters. Your word that shows us time and time again that Christ has accomplished all and that you, by your love, for your glory, as you have promised, have accomplished all that is necessary that we can rest in Christ. We thank you, God, that we are not left to ourselves to conjure up some kind of faith, but that by your grace you have opened our hearts and given us the gift of faith that in turn we might believe, we might trust, we might find hope and assurance and rest. And Father, we are thankful that even when we are not assured, even when we are struggling and doubting, that we can be assured that if Christ has saved us, Christ will keep us. And that my faith in this moment might be weak, it might be waning, I might be struggling to hold on. But even a mustard seed of faith can be assurance enough for us that we know we are in Christ. It's not by the strength of my faith. It's not by the intensity of my faith. It's not by my faith at all that you have loved me, that you have given me life. It is by grace. And by that grace, you have given us faith. And so I pray, God, that you help us to trust in the right things in the right way, that we might live lives not filled with a weighty burden of the law, a weighty burden of our works trying to fulfill something in us and for you. But that our trust would be full and complete in Christ alone. Help us to grab onto him, to see us through each and every day. And we do pray as we hold on to Christ that you do strengthen our faith, that you do give us greater assurance but that we're not depending on those things, but on Christ alone. We thank you, God, for your word. And we pray that as we go forward this week, that we look to Christ, that we might live, and we might have rest. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.